0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. There were clefts in the room. One day they were to become cricket bats, injected with latex. It was a money-making endeavor to help fund cricket's first ever school. The room to dry bats was small, and it was using a hose that pumped in carbon monoxide. If someone was in the room, they would usually have the doors and the windows open. This day, September 1930, while the carbon monoxide pumped in, those windows and doors were shut, and inside that small room there were clefts, gas, and the greatest cricketer South Africa had ever known. Welcome to Double Century, a podcast by me, Jared Kimber, on the history of cricket, brought to you by 99.94. This short series is on one of my favourite cricketers of all time, Aubrey Faulkner. Archie McLaren had a big mouth and was a pompous amateur who was, on occasion, a very fine batter. He was famous for his captaincy, despite the fact that his record never really backed it up. In test matches, he had four wins and 11 losses. But like many players of his time, or I suppose any time, he still believed he was the sole expert on how cricket should be played. Warwick Armstrong's team beat England 5-0 at home straight after World War I. And then, in their next encounter, in the summer of 1921, went 3-0 up in England. Over 34 games, they were unbeaten. A run that includes tests, first class, and other matches. And they were seen as, for want of a better word, invincible. McLaren said Australia were beatable and proclaimed that he could pick a team of gentlemen, former amateur players mixed with university kids, to beat them. Mostly, people laughed at him. But down in Eastbourne, organisers realised that this was an opportunity to make a lot of money, and they offered to host an Archie McLaren England 11 against the Australians. One of the gentlemen was a 39-year-old South African cricketer who had fought in two wars. Struggled with bouts of malaria, was definitely out of shape, and hadn't played a test in nine years. McLaren's dream team managed 43 in the first innings. The old South African, who opened, was bowled by Armstrong. Australia passed that total only one wicket down, but they ended on 174. Here the old South African found some form and took three of the top four with his wickets and four in total. After all these years, people still had trouble picking which way he was spinning it. In the second innings, with his side 71 runs behind and four wickets down, the old man came out to bat. And when he stumbled in, all nervous energy and flawed technique, even Armstrong, who had played against this man at his very best, wouldn't have worried at all. Because this wasn't that same man. That Adonis was the world's greatest all-rounder. This was a broken old fella talking to himself. In fact, after every ball, he would head off to square leg and talk through what he was doing wrong. He was coaching himself on the field. Maybe if they had known how good a coach he was, they would have taken him slightly more seriously. Instead, the Australians laughed at him. Neville Cardis claimed, as he would write in his autobiography later, that he made plans to leave the ground early and return to London. It looked like the game was over. But there's no official time given for when the laughter stopped. Maybe it was when this old fella scored his 50 or his 100, or even when he was done for 153. It was only one of three 50 plus scores in the entire match. It was a chanceless, self commentated innings that took down a bowling attack of Arthur Maley, Jack Gregory, Warwick Armstrong, and Ted McDonald. A brilliant attack humiliated by an old man. An old man who had, in his own words, a will to achieve. When he was out, the lead was 195. And Australia came out to chase it, and they gave the old man a rest. McLaren preferring to use only his two opening bowlers. But with Australia seven wickets down, Tommy Andrews was set, and Armstrong was in. McLaren brought the old man back, and soon after, he dismissed Andrews. He then studied Armstrong for a while. He was cricket's most arrogant man, a bully, the prototype really for what Australian cricket would become. Armstrong and this old man had previous. The story goes that once, in a match before the First World War, the old man was bowling to Victor Trumper, and Armstrong had told him that Trumper's weakness was the quick Yorker. The old man delivered one, Trumper smashed it away. The old man looked back at Armstrong, who gave no reaction at all. So the old man bowled two more, and both were hit to the boundary. After the third, Armstrong had a massive grin across his face. Like many before him, the old man had been grifted by Warwick Armstrong. But in this game, Armstrong was not grinning at all. His amazing summer was about to be ruined by the blowhard McLaren and this old man. The old man even saw Armstrong purse his lips as if he was about to whistle, but no noise resulted. The old man had already shut up the most loudmouthed Australian to that point in history. And the old man shortly after dismissed Armstrong, his sixth wicket of the match. McLaren's gentlemen had beaten this vicious Australian machine. This old man, Aubrey Faulkner, had beaten them. Years earlier, when Aubrey Faulkner was a young man, he was coming back to his family home He lived a life of privilege and his family owned a very impressive house in Port Elizabeth and they would send Faulkner to the prestigious Winberg Boys High School in Cape Town. His father was an incredibly wealthy man but also, according to Faulkner, a drunk and a wife beater. As the story goes, Faulkner had seen this many times before but this time he lost control. Attacking his father would have consequences. It meant that he would forego an easy life. He would still have the name and the status, but not the money and security. Instead of a life of luxury as many people like him would have had, it meant that he was going to have to work hard his whole life, unlike the other people he grew up with who were also born into privilege. But Faulkner didn't think about this. He just snapped and beat his father, stopping only when he realized his father had turned limp. Years later, he would tell his protege, Ian Peebles, that he nearly killed him. There was nothing left for Faulkner in Port Elizabeth. He would spend a lot of his time in the rest of his life in Johannesburg, Cape Town, Nottingham, the gardens of Salonica, Jerusalem, Maidenhead, and London. But he would never truly be at home anywhere. No matter where he went, who he met, what his will achieved, his darkness always stayed with him. Faulkner was 19 when he left home, leaving his family, becoming impendent, and joining the Imperial Light Horse an old South African regiment in Johannesburg, who made him an officer during the Second Boer War. Faulkner was very much the definition of the broad-shouldered South African man. So sat upon his horse, he must have been a magnificent sight, two finely-tuned, powerful animals in harmony. Throughout his early life, there were many reports of women who were drawn to him, even the married ones. His good looks are constantly mentioned anywhere he's ever written about. The stories really start about that when the war ended in 1902. That's when Faulkner moves to Cape Town. He begins his working life as a clerk for H, Eckstein & Co, a gold mining company. This sort of work wasn't really the kind that you would expect someone like Faulkner to take up. He was a man of pedigree, of action, and he was probably bored by his profession. So he made his way down to Newlands for a net session. And there, according to Christopher Martin Jenkins, the complete who's who of test cricketers, he was spotted by Walter Richards. He was a former cricketer turned umpire who'd been a great batter for Warwickshire before they became a first-class team. Richards started coaching Faulkner, but he was no chosen one, just a young man working on his game, willing himself to improve. Transvaal gave him a chance. Faulkner made his debut in a Curry Cup game in April 1903 against Border. He batted at nine and was unbeaten twice for 16 and 17 runs. He didn't bowl in either game. His second game began a day after his first ended, and he bowled five wicketless overs, batted at nine again. He didn't play a first-class game in the following season, although it should be noted that the South African cricket could be a little bit like that. They didn't always play first-class games every season because they didn't always have the money to host them. Faulkner was popular with his teammates, and so no one had a bad word to say about him but he seemed at that point just to be an average cricketer, a clerk with a big smile. Bernard Bousinket also came from a wealthy family, very much a gentleman and not a player. His career would have been actually fairly unremarkable had it not been for a game he played on a table tennis table in which he called twisty-twosty, the object being to spin the ball away from a person trying to catch it on the other side. Somewhere in this gladiatorial battle, The Rongan was born, or, as it was known, I suppose, at the time, the Bosi. South Africa had been playing test cricket for less than a decade when Bausinket discovered the Googly. In fact, they were yet to win a test match. And remember, England would send second-rate, sometimes fourth-rate sides with players who were barely good enough for first-class level. South Africa weren't playing the best players in the world, and they were still losing. In 1904, a South African side toured England, but not as a test side, because people in England didn't think they were good enough. One of the tourists was Reggie Swartz, a handy batter and rugby international for South Africa. In 1901 and 2, Swartz had actually played for Middlesex, and he was good friends with Boussinger, and he traveled on the tour of the US with both of them together, where they would play games against the gentlemen of Philadelphia. So when South Africa played on the 1904 tour, it was Reggie Swartz's former captain and friend and tour master who took nine wickets in an innings with his new creation, the BOSI. Swartz asked Bowsinket about this new magic, and a few weeks later, he tried it himself in a game that wasn't even first class. He took five for 27, and by the end of that tour, he was the third highest wicket taker with 65. Instead of hogging his newfound skill and making a better career for himself, Swartz went back to Transvaal and he found three disciples, Gordon White, Bert Vogler, and Aubrey Faulkner. Essentially, Faulkner was the right man in the right place at the right time. And for the second time in his young life, he found another great teacher. The following South African summer, England toured, again with a bit of a weak team the best players were just not interested in going up against South Africa as the challenge wasn't seen as a real test. Also, the matches were on matting wickets, and no one considered them as important as tests against Australia or even county cricket. Pelham Plum Warner was left with what some thought of as a second or third 11, but everyone still thought it was more than good enough to beat South Africa. Transvaal hosted the tourists in a first-class game before the test. Faulkner and Swartz were both prominent in Transvaal's win. A week later, Faulkner played in his fifth first-class match, which also happened to be his first test. Vogler played too, as did White and Swartz. The four of them took eight wickets as England made 184 runs. However, South Africa couldn't even make half of that and were all out for 91. But Faulkner took four more in the second innings to stop England from making a big total, which meant that South Africa had to chase 284. When Faulkner was run out, they were 105 six. South Africa had scored over 251 runs once, and now they were looking at the third highest chase in test cricket's short history. And remember, this was a team who had never won a test. They had only drawn one. But White hung in, and the legendary Dave Norse partnered with him for a couple of hours. White eventually fell and so did two more wickets before Percy Sherwell, South Africa's wicket-keeper captain, came out. It was his first test and South Africa needed 45 runs. The English lost their nerve pretty quickly, but the South African fans had no real reason to believe in their side. But the chase was exciting them. According to news reports from the time, they roared at every run. And while they did, England's bowling became ragged. Sherwell began hitting boundaries. Norse was defending like one side of Table Mountain, and the cheering grew. Four runs were needed when Albert Ralph strayed down the leg side, and Norse and Sherwell ran three. The scores were tied for three balls before Ralph dropped one short and Sherwell smashed it. Before it even got to the boundary, South Africa had won a test match. Their first in 17 years. Faulkner was a test winner, so was South Africa. And Faulkner was a major part of winning that test and that series as they went on to win 4-1. In that series, South Africa's four leg spinners of the apocalypse took 43 wickets at 18. Faulkner was just one of them, not really a star. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast is part of the 99.94 network. You can download our app to listen to more content there. In the future, 99.94 will have cricket commentary and many different podcasts for you to enjoy. If you like this podcast, you might like our other one, Red Inca, where we occasionally talk about history, but mostly we focus on cricket today and the themes and the way the game is changing. We also have a YouTube channel, which you can find by searching for Jared Kimber. On this, we have the entire history of New Zealand opening batters and also an historical 11 I made of players who never played T20, but how they might have fared in the modern game. This podcast is funded by our supporters on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes, or just Google Jared Kimber Patreon. This is obviously not an easy series to find advertising for, and the more money that we have, the more episodes we can make. So, any way you could support us is appreciated. Double Century is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber, and Nick McCorriston is our producer.